There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Lover's Lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Josh Homme brought music from the California desert to the masses and is now one of the most respected names in rock and roll. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Queens of the Stone Age frontman Josh Homme talks with us about the ups and downs of his bands, leaving record labels, and playing with John Paul Jones. Plus, we'll review the new album from Superchunk. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. You got me wide open, wide open, now I know you're excited about this as a former Backstreet Boys fan. That is uh, one of their new tracks, In a World Like This, which, believe it or not, debuted at number five on Billboard's Top 200 and uh, is proving to be a hit low these 13 or so years after the Backstreet Boys were a mega teen sensation. It's not that we're getting old, but the two of us are sort of mystified by this phenomenon of millennial nostalgia. Remember 2000? So we turn to our own millennial generation expert here, Annie Minoff. You were a huge Backstreet Boys fan, right? Yes, and this was actually kind of my punk rock rebellion because my mother would not have me listening to that commercial schlock. <laughs> so I actually had to listen to my Backstreet Records in secret at friends' houses. So, Annie, we sent you to their Chicago show a few weeks ago. You know, what's really struck me about it was how this was really an irony-free zone. People were genuinely having a good time. This is a band that they grew up with, and a lot of them were enjoying the concert with friends, childhood friends, and family. So these people would have been 10, 12, somewhere in that range, right, when they first heard the Backstreet Boys. And this initial musical impression... They've retained into adulthood to the point where they would pay how much money to go oh, see the Backstreet like Boys? Oh, like upwards of $100. Wow. And I mean, I have to say, I have not listened to these records since I was 12, but when I was at that concert, it all came flooding back. I knew every <laughs> lyric. That's great. You talked to some folks, right? I did. So this was a group of two girls. They were going to the concert to celebrate their birthdays. It's like a childhood memory now because it's our birthday. So we're like, uh, how could we relive our youth? I was in second grade, and the first CD I ever bought was a Backstreet Boys CD. 
So the Backstreet Boys, in their maturity, in their adulthood, what's different yes. about them now as opposed to the band you fell in love with when you were a girl? <laughs> well, as a man band, Backstreet is definitely trying to uh, create a more mature sound. They've been picking up instruments, which I think is a degree of authenticity we really never required of the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> That's just an excuse so they don't have to move because they can't do those moves anymore. And they actually said that. They said, we are prepping this for when we don't have the moves. <laughs> And so uh, A.J. McLean breaks out the tambourine, and uh, we have our musical interlude. So, Annie, we've had this trend lately where bands that have been away for maybe 10 years, Mm -hmm. Postal Service, Destiny's Child, Fall Out Boy, appealing to a certain audience, this millennial audience. What is it about this nostalgia? Was the music so good, or did it just happen to arrive at a certain time in young people's lives that they can't forget about it. It was a good time of life. You know, you're like you're out of college, you're cast out into the big bad world, and you're looking back onto those Destiny's Child music videos and thinking that was a pretty good time. We should note, Annie, that this is one of the last shows you're going to be working on. That's true. Me and my Backstreet Records will be moving back to New York. Well, we won't miss the records, but we'll certainly miss you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that was I Sat by the Ocean from Queens of the Stone Age. The band's singer and founder, Josh Homme, joins us in the studio this week. Josh has been playing music since 1987, and he's been in a number of bands in addition to Queens of the Stone Age. There was the duo The Eagles of Death Metal and My Crooked Vultures, the project with Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters and John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. But the band that started it all for him was Caius, a group that helped define the stoner rock genre dark, sludgy sounds coming from Palm Desert, California. Josh came by the Sound Opinion studio recently while he was on tour with the Queens of the Stone Age, and I started the conversation by asking him about his first band's legacy. I'm so proud of that band, and it really took on a life. It re- its real life happened afterwards. Yeah. You know, I mean, in all honesty. Nobody cared when you were doing it. Especially in America. It was like um, even members of my family didn't care, you know. But, <laughs> but, I, but I, I also think that it sort of galvanized our beliefs, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we never had techs because you didn't do that. We were from the desert. We move our own gear, you know. Yeah. Even when we were on a bus, we're like, no techs. We were kind of arrogant and, and we were way off base but it made it something special. Mm-hmm. And the people that did get it got it so much so that they were the same as us. There was no separation between band and fan of the band, you know. Well, well, you've often said growing up in Palm Desert, there was nothing but music. That was it. That was it for you. And so you could learn how to play and you could begin to create entirely on your own terms. Well, we had a great record store called The Record Alley. Mm. And it was in the mall. So it wasn't like it was off the beaten track. 
But it was in the mall, and they had a huge import section. You know, vinyls were seven bucks, so you could you could afford to try. You know, I mean, the amount of times I bought a record just by cover alone, mm. and then was totally bummed out. But it's still, <laughs> but not all the time. It's it's not about the amount of swings. It's that one time that you really you know find something right. And socially, from the time I was old enough to go out, it always was about music. That's just what was already there for me, you know. I'm impressed by the enterprise of that, though. 14-, 15-year-old kids taking generators out to the desert and playing shows out there. I mean, that's not your typical... Well, really, there was only one generator. There was, it was, there was one. And it's, it was owned by a guy called Mario Lolly, who everyone calls Boomer. And he really is responsible solely for being... The SST bands played the desert, the only bands that played the desert. So that do-it-yourself, you, you really can atmosphere was, is contagious. And, and Boomer really embodied that. He had a generator. He'd have parties at his house. He would listen to Deep Purple, Black Flag, Swa, John Coltrane, you know, Motown stuff. And for him, everything was okay as long as it was good and as long hmm. as you were trying to be yourself. And mm-hmm. so that rubbed off on me. I just, and he was a big guy. He was about you know four hundred pounds, <laughs> and he, he would play guitar. And he was so such. He's such, he's he still is. He's such an original guitar player. And I, w- I remember watching him and thinking he is unhecklable. You can't, <laughs> you, you can't you cannot like his stuff, but you don't say this is fake. What was the goal there? I mean, was it a case of just we can't get shows at clubs or kids' basements, so we're just going to go out in the desert and play, or was it something? Well, you know, know, I think kids don't really have a long view for what's, I mean, it wasn't even that we couldn't get shows somewhere else. You just knew there wasn't, the society and and the desert was like, there's no bands here. I'm sorry. We don't do that, you know. (laughs) And the desert became just this natural, you know, in hindsight, why I, I really feel blessed to have been around that situation. It's got nothing to do with me. I just happen to be there because, you know, it seems so natural to go, well, let's go out there then where we always go, where we're going to smoke pot and no one can see us or smoke cigarettes. And, you know, and, and you have these parties in this beautiful location. And sometimes there were 20 people and sometimes there were 400 people. Sometimes they were so lawless it was scary. And sometimes they were like a love fest, you know, and you never knew what you are going to get. And it made it different every time. And I think I got addicted to that too, that it has to be every situation is situational. Mm. And it's always nice to drive by police where their police cruiser buried in the sand, you know. <laughs> Stop and pull us out. You know? later you still try to reconnect with that with these desert sessions i mean what are we up to 10 10 i haven't done one in quite some time but not on purpose but yeah Mm -hmm. we're up to 10 i've read a great quote from you once about those you know you're getting people together to record as if you know we're 
starting on day one. And, you know, you've said that it's necessary to do that sometimes just to make music again with no expectations and nothing but the joy of making music. Yeah, for no reason. Mm. You know, I, I, in all honesty, I don't really promote them. And it's more for the musicians in a, in a way. And mm-hmm. I think it's also a really great treasure for somebody that is a music lover. They'll know that they're out there, you know. Mm-hmm. If you're in a band, if Caius was so insulated, we couldn't play with anybody else. It would be like cheating on your girlfriend, you know. <laughs> and there were so many rules in Caius that we made that it became tough to not break them on, on accident. And But with Desert Sessions, it's, it's like saying, you know, you, I'm not saying break up with your band. I'm saying come here, do this, and be something that you never <clears throat> would have been in, uh, in your other band just for no reason at all. when Caius ended? 21. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. What did you feel at that point? You know, I, I mean, I always thought the shows were getting bigger in Europe and and I always thought, well, someone's just going to take this all away because isn't that what happens? You know, I think it was a bit of a punk rock guilt mixed with a defeatist mm. attitude, like the best music never gets heard, man. It's a, there's <laughs> yeah. some kind of safety there. And to be honest, I felt like um, Caius was... The goal would be to have a band, but not too long before you changed and turned it into something else. That you should kind of, to preserve it, is to destroy it. So there was never any consideration of, well, now it's time to become a contractor like my dad. Well, no, I, I, I assumed that that's what would happen. Hmm. And really, I didn't listen to that much music because, you know, you're, you're, you're a kid and you sort of like, I listen to Black Flag and, and, and the English subhumans, and that's what I listen to, and don't try and people would say, you, sound, you guys sound like Sabbath. And I loved being able to say, I've never heard Sabbath. was an interesting band because I don't you said there's no category we couldn't play with others I mean you got lumped in with stone rock kind of after the fact you know that well that, that didn't that term know? was almost yeah. more for for Jude like I remember being in high school and the stoners mm-hmm. where they listened to priest and maiden and so when people st- started calling a stoner rock and this genre of stuff you know I I was offended mm-hmm. because I was like no we're black flag you know at the end of black flag they sounded more jazzy than ever. Yeah. And so I took that whatever whatever is going on out there, just don't do that. But the, but the sound was was immense. I remember seeing a show near the end of it. I wrote something like widescreen. It was kind of like it didn't feel vertical, it felt horizontal. Yeah, <laughs> I don't but, know a better way to put it. No, but that's that's exactly it because when you play outside, 
it's not bouncing off anything. It's got a way of sounding tiny instantaneously. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, trying to figure out what could make us different, what could be us, what could be me, you know. And I didn't have a tuner, and so I just started going down. And mm-hmm. I went till the strings flapped, and then I just went up a bit. And that's <laughs> how we tuned to each other. <laughs> and the magic coincidence of it for was that outside, all of a sudden, we were heavier than everybody. And so we started, you know, I started playing bass amps for guitar and started just going down that road of, well, what else are you not supposed to do or that's wrong? Mm-hmm. Let's just do, you know, if two wrongs don't make a right, but what do 50 wrongs make? Do you understand why the influence sort of grew after the fact? I mean, do you have an appreciation for that now? Or? Absolutely. I, I mean, it's such a rare thing to have a legacy. <laughs> you can't try to make that happen. And if we'd have kept going, it, it wouldn't have happened the same way, too. I, I got to ask you, too, before Queens got going, uh, there was a brief period there where you got involved with Screaming Trees, and, <laughs> uh-huh. which was a great thing. It was, we loved that band. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Those I think brothers. They, 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 they played yeah. a gig at EMP when it opened, and uh-huh. you were the get, second guitarist in the That's band. Right. So it, it almost seemed like the only reason that band held together was because you were trying to... Well, keep it together at some well, point. I, I'd quit playing music, and I just, you know, I didn't know what I w- wanted to do. I was going to school in Seattle. My brother lived up there, and my friend Mike Johnson, he suggested me. And frankly, I hadn't heard the trees at that point. And I heard one song. I heard Lanigan's voice, and I said, "Yeah, anyone that does know me would think I shouldn't do this, so I'll do that." And it was just for a one tour, a Lollapalooza tour, and they didn't get along. They didn't hate each other but they didn't really get along all the time they would say terrible stuff to each other but i got along with all of them and i was i was much younger than they were you know six or seven years and so i kind of became like a like a youth pastor (laughs) 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 but it was great experience being a hired gun was really wonderful experience and i remember i was driving the ramones were on that Lollapalooza tour and I was driving C.J. Ramon's truck, and I'm driving in the middle of nowhere, thinking, "How could I not play music for a living?" And this, you know, in the, we were in the <laughs> desert, going to New Mexico, and it's like, uh-huh. "How could I give this up to like go to school for business?" Wow! So that's how it—that was the moment where you kind of thought, "Let's keep, let's keep doing some things." Yeah, I'd be foolish not to see where this road goes. We'll talk more about where Josh Homme's road has gone after a short break here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we review the new album from Superchunk, and I'll drop a quarter into the Desert Island Jukebox. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and our guest this week is Josh Homme, lead singer of Queens of the Stone Age. We talked before the break about Josh's first band, Caius, one that helped define that stoner rock genre. After Caius ended in 1995, Josh started up Queens, and it was a very different band. As we pick up our conversation, Josh Homme explains where the Queens of the Stone Age sound came from. I've always wanted to make something that someone within a couple seconds would hopefully know it's you. I didn't really want to sing, but I tried to work with some people and they were all singers. You know, it's, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's hard to find people to exchange ideas with that aren't afraid. So I, I had a f- kind of a full band and two days before we were going to go to the desert and make the first record. I, I just let everyone go except the drummer and I guess I'll try to sing. Well, if we look at the history, Josh, of Queens from 97 to the present, you're the sole constant. Was that part of your plan from the beginning is with with this group? I'm going to call it a group, but I'm going to always be tossing things up. Well, in any situation, you want to be appreciated and you want to show appreciation. But I really, I think for music, democracy is not necessarily the way to to get the best thing. You know, I mean, this is about sort of chasing the sounds in your head. And like Queens has always been run by consensus where we talk about what we're going to do. But it's also in some ways it's a consensus, but then it's not a democracy either. You know, you get to be the dictator at the end of the day. Well, I mean, I wanted to make a world where a world, my own world that I could live in. But at the same time, I want to be a good listener. I want to work with you. I want to listen to what you have to say and. I want to be able to be honest and say I'm just not that into that. I so, want to explore uh, this dictator thing just a little bit deeper because there's no such thing as men that's not a dictatorship. Even if you look at some of the classic examples that seemed like a partnership, Lennon and McCartney. But really, like McCartney would be ascendant on one record and right. Lennon was in the background and, you know, on Revolver. But it, crea- it created this great uh, – even if it's an undercurrent, this great competition of mm. – the worst thing you could have is role envy if you want to be the bass player and you're the drummer. Mm-hmm. And really, that's a I've, that I, I've seen in so many bands over the years where it's like, why don't you just say what you want and stop living with this like thing where you <laughs> I wish we could do that as if someone were stopping you. Right. Go that's, do it. And that's what I love about Queens is is that whenever I've worked with someone new, it's it's always look, you be yourself. One of the things you have to do is speak your mind and say what you really think. But I'd love to be in something where we're all working in the same direction. And, and you're not spending time and energy, like, stopping someone's passive-aggressive behavior. Yeah, right. You get tired of that after a certain point. Yeah, because who cares? Just shut up and say what you want. Let's try to get awesome. Let's try to do something classic. <laughs> yeah.
you know, you mentioned the voice earlier, and I want to touch on that because I, th- I remember when people were sort of putting you in, a, in a, the hard rock end of things. We just talked a little bit about Ozfest before we started taping here, and you were on Ozfest, I believe, like 2000 or so, sometime very early in the band's career yeah. before anybody really knew who you were. And out comes this guy who's six six and looks like he's you know could chop down a tree with one hand and and, and singing in a fairly high voice, not not your traditional growly subterranean metal voice and this kind of eclectic music going on what was going through your head was it just to sort of screw with people I, i'm just going to be the singer because nobody's you know nobody's expecting this or was there something else going on well i mean there's a few things one is i can't scream i i just i sound like i'm asking someone to prom i'm like you know, <laughs> it just doesn't sound good and also that's not my style i i, I like the juxtaposition of something broken with something beautiful growing out of it you know and and i also for me i finally started to realize the goal is to be able to play any type of music you want and it just goes through your filter but you make it work you make it okay and i also don't want to play to just a bunch of guys either i want it to be like the parties i grew up going to where it was kind of wild and chaotic and it was boys and girls and it was loose and it was the sun is down and it's the weekend and anything is possible that i grew up romanticizing that and live in that environment and i i just feel like if you get to do this you should take that chance yeah they didn't like us very much on fest <laughs> but see I, I i was in kai so i was honestly i was used to being hated and i i've i've always enjoyed a little of friction and a little confrontation like that because you must be doing something right if it's angering somebody And, and, and not sticking with the sound either. I mean, those you go from the Queens of the Stone Age record in 98, Rated R in 2000, sounded different from that. Songs for the Deaf sounded different from that. People say, well, what's the Queens of the Stone Age sound? And I don't think anybody could have ever put their finger on, other than you being a common thread through the whole thing. Was that intentional? Caius had a singular sound. In a lot of ways, when it was time to come back and I said, okay, I'm going to do my own thing and in a lot of ways, all I did was look at what I felt worked for Caius, and I thought, well, maybe the polar opposite of that will work. And I wanted a way to play music like my taste was, you know, Slayer, Sinatra, Motown, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Little Richard, because I, I felt like, oh, this is how people really listen to music. It's all over the place, whatever's good. So I kind of had this three-record plan of, you know, taking three records to fan out this music and the goal would be to you know take people that were into you slowly on this journey where you could play anything and they would accept it
matter of choosing people too to play with, you know? Um, well, at the end of the day, you play with the best people you have available to you. But when you have the sound in mind, you sort of say, you know, I it would be great to have this guy for this record or for this song. Or was it you mean just having more, guests and yeah. stuff like that? Well, the, I always expect those creative relationships not to last because they're sort of designed not to in a lot of ways, you know. And early on, I really wanted to harness something that should destroy itself. You know, hence having Nick and Mark and me and it's a tough uh, group to tour manage. Well, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask about Nick Oliveri. I mean, the closest you've had to a foil through Queens of the Stone Age was Oliveri. And, and uh, you know, when he left, a lot of people who'd even – listeners who were willing to go on this journey as you changed through those first couple of albums, you know, were like, they've lost something. That's it. I'm out. Yeah. I mean, it was a tough time because it wasn't about music and it wasn't about partying. It was about something that was rough and where I had to make a choice. And I've known Nick since I was 11, and and, and I love Nick. And I thought to myself, I always kept my personal life really far away. I didn't want people to know about me personally, you know. And we were doing well, but it's that's dangerous. There's no amount of advice that can help you out when you're starting to do well, how you handle it. So um, I had to turn and fire my best friend, you know. Mm. And I and I, here I was thinking, like, I'm not going to say why because it could be really damaging for him. But I'm going to drive to his house, look him in the eye, and do it like I've done before because – and I kept thinking, I'll, people will understand, they'll respect that and as if they would know and as if that really is how it goes, you know. So I was really confused because I – it completely exploded the dynamic of, of where the band was going. But it had to be done, you know. It yeah. had to be done. And people were like, fired both both the other singers. And I, I remember people would say to me, like, you you want to sing more? Where I thought, oh, my God, are you, are you serious? Yeah. So for a sec, it sort of messed with my with my head for a sec, you know. Yeah. When when the fact of the matter is that three months after I let Nick go, we were having drinks together and hanging out and, you know, repairing what got damaged. Well, I want to jump ahead to one of your side projects. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the concept of the conversations with John Paul Jones and Grohl. You know, Dave, Dave Grohl, uh, having been through Nirvana, the band of a generation, that famous, and then the end, you know. And, you know, John Paul Jones of the Vikings that crossed the world, right? Yeah. You know, did you, were there insights that you gleaned? Uh, from those guys in Them Crooked Vultures about how to handle oneself and keep creative and, and stay alive and deal with rock stardom, whatever that means. Well, for starters, but even way before Vultures, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from Dave. Dave and I have always had a real special relationship and chemistry together. And Dave is an, a very famous dude, but nobody handles it better than him. He's always handled it so well. And and also, always been just a nice guy, but you know, for me, where it's Dave, to everyone else is Dave Grohl, but for me, it's Dave because our relationship is based on telling each other to shut up and and being honest and knowing that that means more too. So, and, but there's not many more people that he could be in a room with who are ten times more famous than him, besides John Paul Jones. Yeah, who's the sensible one? 
<laughs> yeah, Isn't that strange, of, of, right? of Zeppelin, yeah. yeah. Well, and then there's Jones, yeah, who I met at medieval times for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> You're making that up. No, Dave, because, you know, Dave and I were looking for something to do together. And he goes, well, I could call John Paul Jones. And I was like, oh, dude, that's cool. I'll, I'll call George Bush and we'll do this enforcement thing. <laughs> but he was serious and I wasn't. And, and he was having his 40th birthday at Medieval Times. Wow. And I go to the party and he goes, Jones is coming into town, is going to be in town. And he'll be there. So we should talk about this. And so I sit down next to Jones at Medieval Times. And I keep flashing on like the darkest depths of Mordor. You know, <laughs> seriously, with a with a turkey leg in your hand. Yeah, you know, <laughs> darkest depths of Anaheim, more like. <laughs> and you know, it was a bit strange, but we had we were able to bond over making fun of medieval times together. And the next day, we jammed, and you know, there really wasn't time for me to think, but we the, we musically hit it off. And what I learned. From Jones is you know Jones has been with the same woman the whole time and yeah. Jones is like the musical multi tool. He plays everything except drums. Mm-hmm. And if you say why don't you play drums, he goes I played with John Bonham. Right. And then you feel stupid. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and I'm a little bit dark sometimes. And I'm sitting there, you know, Dave's gone. It's me and Jones working till three in the morning. Right. We barely know each other. And I'm trying to sing stuff and do stuff that, not knowing if I like it. But the darker I got. And the more twisted out I got, the more he liked it and would <laughs> sit up and, oh, yes, I'm going to make a tea. <laughs> <laughs> You guys made a, a great album, and I remember, I think it de- you debuted it live in, in, in Chicago, actually. Yeah, at the Metro. At Metro, what a show. Unbelievable show. Yeah. How did that change the way you look at music, if, if at all? But I'm, I'm curious about the sound you made, the three of you made together, was obviously something that I don't think you'd ever touched on before. Well, I, I, I think, I mean, just in talking about that situation, I knew a couple things right away that I really shouldn't think about it too much. In some ways, it's almost like you're rehearsing your whole life for a moment to just finally be yourself, you know, and in a situation where you have no other option that would work. So in a lot of ways, I turned my brain off because I wanted Dave to sing and stuff too. And I thought, you know, it's, it's a lot, it was a lot of maybe responsibility to, to, to deal with. You know, that show at the Metro walking on stage was surreal because never heard anyone yell for something they didn't understand. <laughs> and we all just looked at and, and actually in the first song, we just blew it right off the bat, but no one knew, you know, <laughs> and for about five seconds and we, and then we locked in and it really was just this amazing thing. And so all you're left to do is look at Dave and John and, and sort of giggle your way through the next year.
I don't know if you would agree with this, but I, I, I sort of heard the Queen's record uh, in 2007, Era Vulgaris, and them crooked vultures as kind of crooked cousins in some way. I mean, some of the, and don't take this the wrong way, but some of the weirdest music you've ever made. Yeah. And also pretty, pretty amazingly powerful. But, you know, it's amazing. You're working inside the machine like Interscope. I know record company executives talk like this because I've actually interviewed a few bands who've been set where, where's the single where's the songs yeah where's the feel-good hit of the summer how yeah. do you how do you operate I mean, under a, yeah. that system making music like that well especially especially when it's us where i never said i was going to have a single you know you're having someone's having a dialogue with you that you never signed on for and some of the things started to creep in and, and affect me a little bit you know um you know after nick and sort of feeling bombarded by that and and then, you know, put out lullabies, which we made in 28 days and and was so effortless to make. And Interscope was just kind of – I'm sitting in a room and they're like, we recouped and we're, we're good. We're good. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, what the hell am I doing sitting in here with you guys? Yeah. By the time it came to Era, I wanted to jump out of a tree and attack anything that was <laughs> – anybody, you know. And so I think it's a little more of a middle finger in the face. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. We're here with Josh Homme. Josh, um, there's always been a little bit of an edge to what you've done, I think. I don't think people associate you with being kind of the sensitive guy, you know, but on this record, uh, dare I say, you know, I appear missing, that's just a heartbreaking song. You know, I listen to that song and I'm going, that's another level of something here. Uh, and as a vocalist, it seemed like you took it to a different place than normally allowing yourself to be that transparent in some ways did you, was it just a there was you needed to express something well there was nothing there was no other way i could say what i mean that was the only and so, i guess it's so it's so singular this time had to get out of the fog had to say it there's no way to mask it it couldn't be any other way you know and i guess it came back to like uh, in a lot of ways it almost came back to the same where where Caius was found, like that music was my religion and it had always been the thing that saved me and showed me the right way to go. And when you feel completely lost, it's like you almost have to turn yourself over to it and have enough blind faith to just leap and let it go. And, you know, I've had plenty of moments of being like go with the flow is very straightforward and, and very true and stuff, but there's just something different about this record because it starts from a very desperate spot and it's not where i where i wasn't sure there's any there's it's like there's no guarantee for a happy ending you know mm -hmm. and um uh, so yeah so it just had to be that way and i think as the years go on i know that unless you lay it all bare that i, I couldn't be happy unless i just lay it all out there completely you know so in that respect it's that's all i can do now you know 
is Lay It All Bare. It's been a pleasure to have Josh Hami on Sound Opinions. Josh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. To listen to the entire Josh Homme interview again, visit us at soundopinions.org. You can also send us a comment via Facebook or Twitter. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I review the new album from Superchunk, I Hate Music. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the song Overflows by Superchunk from album number 10 in their long career, I Hate Music. An ironic title there, Greg. I'll tip my hand right there. Superchunk, you know, has been around since the late 80s, formed in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. People have come and gone through the band, but the heart and soul has always been guitarist vocalist Mac McCon and his partner Laura Balance on bass. A couple of fine albums in the 90s recording with people like Steve Albini and always remaining sort of underground as the alternative rock explosion happened. They never made the big breakthrough to the mainstream and they never really stopped going. There were periods of, of inactivity where they got out of that van and stopped crossing the country. But then another record would come by to get you excited about Superchunk anew. Always a very simple sound, a powerful, propulsive, melodic version of punk rock. Majesty Shredding was the last album they gave us in 2010. Their prolific output has slowed a little bit, so we had to wait three years for this new one, I Hate Music. Let's play a tune from it, and we'll come back and give our opinions. This is called Me and You in Jackie Matu on Sound Opinions.
That is me and you and Jackie Matu from the new Super Chunk album, I Hate Music. Jackie Matu, a reference to the late keyboardist of the Scatolites, that great Jamaican band. And, you know, it's a typical Super Chunk type of reference because they're huge music heads. Mm -hmm. But it's really the key to this record, Jim, that song and those lines. They're bringing it back to themselves. In 2010, Majesty Shredding was their first album in nearly a decade, and you could feel the exuberance of the band having fun, getting into a studio, recording music together again. In this one, they're looking at similar themes, but more reflectively. Are they talking about music, or in some ways are they talking about life itself, or is music life itself? Well, they're of the generation, Greg, where there's no difference. I mean, music is your life. That's what indie rock meant to Superchunk. And they're questioning it. Their songs addressing the, the notions of loss or death or despair, even a sort of burnout. But they're blasting through all of them. In Me and You and Jackie Matu, they they say, I hate music. What's it worth? It can't bring anyone back to this earth. You know, we're not going to bring Jackie back. He's been dead for for 20 years. And they've had some loss in their personal lives recently. So it's not really this obscure Jamaican character we're singing about. It's metaphorical, and I think they're addressing a lot wider issues here. But, you know, at the end of the day, they say, we're cramming back into the back of the van all of your friends with no plan. That's the lifeblood that they feel going through them. They can't escape it. It's a beautiful element about this notion of music and life being inextricably intertwined, and they can't possibly separate them. More reflective than uh, Majesty Shredding, but just as good, I think, a buy-it album all the way. Oh, it absolutely is a buy-it album, Greg. You know that image at the end of me and you and Jackie Matu of one of the band members with their feet on the dash playing with the stereo. I mean, that's what it's about. It was about community and coming together and, you know, very diverse sounds uh, could all be part of this spirit. And now sort of indie rock has become a marketing genre. You know, that's not the way Superchunk meant it. And even in these moments of a crisis of faith, they still believe music has the power to heal. I, I love this album. It's definitely a buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and play you a track we cannot live without. Greg, it's time to get into the funicular and head over to the desert island. Jim, I don't even know what that is. It's the tram that goes up and down the Alps. Okay. I'm going to go visit Cowboy Jack Clement on the desert island, his memory anyway. Clement died recently at the age of 82 eccentric and great country songwriter, producer, recording artist. He was one of Sam Phillips' most important lieutenants at Sun Studios in Memphis during the 50s. The story goes that while Sam was on vacation, Cowboy Jack Clement brought Jerry Lee Lewis into the studio and said, hey, kid, come on, let's play some songs together. Mm. And a whole lot of shaking going on came out of that session, and another great Sun Studios star was born. He also worked extensively with Johnny Cash while he was at Sun. He produced several sessions for Cash, wrote at least one major hit for him, Ballad of a Teenage Queen. Fast forward to 62, a few years later, and both Cash and Clements have moved on. Cash has gone to Columbia Records and is having some not-so-great success there. So Cash is in need of a hit. The year 
prior, June Carter and Merrill Kilgore had written Ring of Fire based on an Elizabethan poem. And June was basically pouring out some of her feelings about Johnny in this song. Johnny was married at the time. June had feelings for him but realized she couldn't fully express them, so she wrote this song about him. The song, called Love's Ring of Fire, came out in 62. It was performed by her sister, Anita. And then in 1963, Johnny loved the song. He said, yeah, I'm going to take a crack at this one. So he had a dream before the recording session where he heard mariachi trumpets on the song. Mm. He wakes up the next day. He goes, my producer, Don Law, is never going to go for trumpets on a country song. I got to call up Clement. He'll know what to do. (laughs) So he has Jack Clement come into the session. Law's producing, but Clement's sort of the go-between between Johnny Cash and Don Law, the producer. Clement comes up with this mariachi riff, and it becomes the central theme of that song. It gives that song a certain energy and distinctiveness that the original version never had. And Cash, lo and behold, had his first big hit at Columbia Records. Clement really kind of made that happen. Here it is, Johnny Cash with Ring of Fire from 1963 on Sound Opinions. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire The taste of love is sweet When hearts like ours meet I fell for you like a child Oh, but the fire went wild That is the great Johnny Cash with Ring of Fire, Greg's Desert Island jukebox pick in tribute to producer Jack Clement, dead at the age of 82. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to look back at the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and the great protest music that came out of it. As always, we have some thanks to say on the way out. Megan Murphy is our intern. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. And a little last musical tidbit for you. This is the week that is the anniversary of P. Diddy just becoming Diddy. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 
859-1800. New messages. Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Rory, calling from Oakland, California, and really appreciated your instrumental show. Uh, that one was a long time in coming. Uh, one band you didn't mention that I, I think you should have is a band called Pell-Mell. They released several great albums in uh, the 80s and 90s, all instrumental, uh, a little bit surfy, but uh, a little bit spacey, too. Features Steve Fisk on keyboards. He went on to be producer for Screaming Trees and some other notable Northwest bands. But great show and keep up the good work. Thanks. Hi, guys. This is George in Chicago. I was enjoying your show on Best Instrumentals last week. Until I realized you decided not to go surfing with the alien. I'm referring, of course, to Joe Satriani. I mean, come on, guys. Well, maybe you could do another show in the future. Best Instrumentals Part 2. In any case, love your show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hey, guys. This is Big Papa E out of Wichita, Kansas. I loved the episode where you played all the instrumentals. That's some of my favorite music of all time, and I was right with you. Until you just kind of skipped over the 70s, and that had some of the best rock instrumentals of all time. So I felt like I needed to call in and let you know there was one lumbering beast of a rock instrumental that absolutely needs to be played. When I heard this when I was growing up in the mid-70s, I always hoped for the extended version with all the laser beams in the center. You could sing along to this instrumental with no words. Then the guitar would come in, and then you had that part in the center. And then the laser ring.
And then go back to it. I mean, come on. Frankenstein, Edgar Winter Group. Amazing. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.